Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State, but please call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Philip Cunliffe about his book, Lenin Lives, Reimagining the Russian Revolution, 1917-2017, out with zero books in 2017. Dr. Philip Cunliffe is a senior lecturer in international conflict at the University of Kent's School of Politics and International Relations. His research interests include peacekeeping, humanitarian intervention, responsibility to protect, self-determination, sovereignty, critical theory, and IR theory. He is the author of Legions of Peace, UN Peacekeepers from the Global South, out in 2013, Cosmopolitan, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, International Intervention and the Failure of the West, out in 2020, and also out in 2020, The New 20 Years Crisis, A Critique of International Relations, 1999-2019. He has also published several anthologies. If his voice sounds familiar, you may recognize it from Afe Bunga Bunga, which bills itself as the Global Politics Podcast at the End of the End of History, a tagline that I'm very, very jealous of. I love that, at the end of the end of history. Um, Philip Cunlip, Cunlip, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So before we get into Lenin Lives, which I think will be a really fun uh, discussion for um, listeners of New Books in History, because this is a different type of, of historical thinking and historical writing, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you have a doctorate in war studies. Um, what led you to this career, and, and what led you to the topics that you study? Yeah, so it's um, it's formally in war studies, though really the thesis itself was in international relations, and it was on developing countries' role in peacekeeping or how um, developing countries in the post-Cold War era ended up sending such large um, global deployments of military force around the world under the umbrella of peacekeeping. And it was a topic that fascinated me because it was so counterintuitive that you had frequently um, poor and weak states rather than wealthy and powerful ones being so heavily deployed in war zones around the world. And so anyway, I studied for it at um, the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Um, Can I I ask what your your case studies were in that? I, I assume Cambodia. No, so there were no case studies. So it was based on, it was more an institutional analysis of the United Nations itself, rather than the um, either the, con- the countries where the peacekeepers were deployed um, or um, the countries that deployed the peacekeepers. There were, there were one or two uh, mini case studies, but really it was an institutional analysis of the internal functioning of the UN itself and how that refracted the various kind of political processes at work. But it was, it was in the War Studies Department at King's College London, um, which includes everyone from international relations theorists to naval historians to uh, strategic theorists. So because I was there, it was, a, it was a PhD in War Studies, though technically um, it's an international relations um, thesis. Um, what drew me to the career, I suppose, and to academia was that I still, I think, um, and I, I still think it's true, that... Um, Academia is still one of the few places left where it's possible to pursue um, political interests intellectually. So an interest in politics and history in an, in an, inter, you know, in an intellectual and hopefully um, rigorous and scientific way. And that's very difficult to do in, um, in any other kind of job. Yeah. Um, and I think in both, you're calling from the, we're talking to you and you're in the United Kingdom and I'm here in California and 
neither uh, nation state is providing great examples of um, uh, politicians with uh, strong intellectual interests. No, no, that's that's definitely true. <laughs> so, um, and and also, I want to I want to quickly talk about your podcast, Afe Bunga Bunga, which um, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of and, and strongly recommend uh, to listeners. Can you before we get in, into the book, can you give us a little pitch for the podcast? What do you what what do you guys talk about? Um, who's involved? And what's 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 the mission of global politics podcasting at the end of the end of history? And yeah. and I'm so happy every time I hear that uh, that tagline because I, I can't stand Francis Fukuyama. <laughs> so it's um, so as you say, it's a podcast. I co-host it with um, my two collaborators, George Hoare, who's based here in the UK, and Alex Oakley, who's based in Sao Paulo in Brazil, and. I suppose we are, our aim was to provide a perspective on global politics, um, as we term it at the end of the end of history, which is to say that we try to examine it um, in the aftermath of this, of the 30 years since the end of the Cold War that were generally seen as kind of ideologically centrist and ruled by a liberal technocratic consensus, um, which Francis Fukuyama famously, notoriously described as the end of the end of history. And it seemed to us that period kind of fell away or began to fell away at least, you know, roughly around the time of the great financial crash, and then that the political backwash of the financial crash was felt um, maybe 10 years later, um, and especially, I suppose, with the, um, and most um, most uh, significantly with the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and with the Brexit vote in Britain to secede from the European Union. And I suppose because it was because that post-ideological era seemed to be crumbling away, we styled the podcast as being at the end of the end of history. But it actually originated just from kind of the informal chats that we had in, you know, social messaging services on social media and what have you. And um, we thought that it might be useful to kind of structure it um, and to, you know, and to see if people were interested in listening um, to the kinds of ideas we were batting back and forth. And um, thus far, fortunately and um happily they seem to be so yeah well i've been listening <laughs> i'm delighted to hear it and uh it, it came recommended to me from a friend who's actually uh not an academic he's he's got a real job and said <laughs> here's the smartest podcast you need to listen to right now i said okay all right oh, wow <laughs> so um in in the introduction to Lenin Lives, um, you quip that uh, when your students asked you uh, what kind of a Marxist uh, you are, you once replied, Gonzo. And I, I chuckled that not only because I'm a Hunter S. Thompson fan, but um, because I've, I've gotten that question from my students and I always respond with vulgar. I'm a vulgar Marxist. So <laughs> what, what's behind that answer? And if it was if it was a sincere answer, a sincere term, what, what do you mean by Gonzo Marxism? Yeah, so I mean, I I suppose I meant it at least half sincerely. Um, and to be fair, I mean, I'm pretty vulgar myself. Um, <laughs> I, th I think it was um, I think it was the British author James Hartfield who was the first to use it. And um, when I say it, or when I used it with my students, it was partly a pr as a prop, as a way to kind of gently swipe away questions about the arcania of um, various kind of Marxist political sects and affiliations. Um, whose history, I mean, as I'm sure you know, as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is kind of so intractable and repellent often. Um, and I think also with respect to my teaching, is also mostly irrelevant. Um, so, 
you know, to that extent, it was half half serious. But I did mean it more seriously, I think, with respect to the argument of Lenin Libs, in as much as I tried to weave in into the narrative of Lenin Libs, into the book, I tried to weave in elements of social critique and self-satire into the argument, um, which is what I, which is what Hunter S. Thompson meant by Gonzo when he coined the term. So to that extent, um, I think it is, you know, I also wanted it to be a kind of um, an accurate depiction of the kind of thing that I try to do in the narrative of the book, which is at odds with, um, uh, you know, much other kind of Marxist accounts of um, politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when, when I under, understand the term and, and this isn't exactly what uh, Hunter S. Thompson was talking about when he coined the term gonzo journalism, but when I, when I apply it, it's, it's, it's good, solid work um, that's bending rules and often bending rules in a, in a fun way, but for productive purposes. And I, I think that that's, you know, Lenin lives is, uh, you know, is, is counterfactual history, eh, maybe gonzo history. In that regard, it's it's uh, you know, it's bending some rules that my profession abides by. <laughs> um, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, and I would, but, I think that's for, for all the right reasons, right? It's a great, I mean, it's a great line from Thompson, and I would, yeah, I definitely subscribe to it. Yeah, yeah. So in in Lenin Lives, um, you stress that Marx and Engels self-identified as scientific socialists. Um, so what would this term entail, and and what are the implications for um? Shall we say applied Marxism, and then how does how what why is it important to remind us of that now? Yeah, so it means to have a theoretical account of the conditions for the emergence of socialism from capitalism, um, which also incorporates an account of the social and political agency by which that transformation takes place. And this was lacking in the utopian socialists, whom Marx and Engels criticized. Um, and I suppose, I mean, following Hunter S. Thompson, in as much as Gonzo is uh, based on incorporating the participation of the protagonist into the narrative, um, then I guess you could also say that Marx and Engels were the first Gonzo socialists, um, in as much as they differentiated themselves from their predecessors um, by identifying the possibility of socialism with the political agency of the industrial proletariat. And also that they attach themselves so firmly and decisively to the working class's political struggles of the 19th century. So I suppose in as much as it was important to stress that, it was important to um, talk about political agency because that was so central to – yeah? Yeah. So, so th- I mean, that, that just put a little spark in my uh, mind. So is the, um, is the famous thesis on uh, Feuerbach uh, about the – purposes you know what is it not to previous philosophers have studied the world the purpose is to to change the world is that is that gonzo socialism uh yeah i mean i suppose yes yes it is in short i think so gonzo philosophy yeah gonzo philosophy and gonzo socialism in as much as um in as much as the protagonist the agent um is at the core of it and that transforming the context involves transforming the agent themselves because the making i suppose in the in the marxist schema in as much as the working class becomes the ruling class in that process um the working class itself is transformed so yeah i think i would i think i would stretch i would stretch the argument to say that they were the first gonzo socialists yeah yeah so um Lenin Lives is not a, you know, scare quotes, normal uh, history or, or academic history. It's a counterfactual history. 
um, and it reimagines a, a better 20th century. It's premised upon the idea that Lenin's health held up uh, just a little bit longer, a little bit better, um, and its health held up partially due to a successful revolutionary wave that uh, swept Europe after 1917, um, as opposed to the failed uh, revolutionary wave um, that le- eventually led to Stalinism in the Soviet Union and liberal compromises with fascism in the West. Um, so w- why write a counterfactual history? And um, let's pretend I'm a boring, stodgy historian and uh, sell me on counterfactual history. Um, what, what What's the value here? Sell, sell the genre to me. Yeah. So counterfactual history, I mean, as the name suggests, it's history against the facts, um, against what actually happened. And as you've um, as you've suggested, I mean, the genre is generally frowned upon both in history and in social science. And I mean, for, you know, I think in some respects, at least for good reasons, because it's difficult enough to establish, you know, what really happened in any particular case. So why make things more difficult for ourselves by asking how things might have happened differently? Um and the fact that it that this kind of genre tends to rest so heavily on contingency in the historical process also means that it's often been seen as a prop for conservative historiography by stressing um, randomness and contingency in the historical process rather than the grand prat- patterns of deep historical development. Um, the latter obviously being more associated with Marxism, Although, I mean, in fact, it was uh, pioneered in the stadial theories of um, historical progress that were devised by the leading thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment, including, of course, um, Adam Smith himself. And I suppose as a popular genre, counterfactual history is most associated with those kinds of weird, um, creepy, um, forlorn and these kind of wistful accounts of what if the rebel slave states had succeeded in breaking away from the Union during the U.S. Civil War, or if the Nazis had won um, because Hitler invaded the USSR a few weeks earlier or whatever. Um, So, I mean, there is, you know, there is a kind of... um, there are understandable reasons, I suppose, to be skeptical of counterfactual history. Um, no, it, it, it is sort of the domain of right wingers, and uh, yeah. I would I I just finished that six part uh, documentary on um, uh, QAnon and the uh, the message boards, and it's a, sort of the Denzians of the uh, the the eight chan world. It seems like this would be the audience for a lot of these like right wing counterfactual histories. What if the Confederate States had won? What if Hitler had you know got this yeah. gun at a certain point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I wanted to, I mean, partly part of the inspiration for writing the book was to break the stranglehold of conservative um, historians, but also that creepy kind of popular version of the genre. Um, Because it seemed to me at the same time that any attempt to, that any uh, serious attempt to grapple with revolutionary history is itself inherently counterfactual. Um, And reading through the... um, the Bolsheviks' own accounts of the debates they had and the political calculations they were making about whether or not to try to overthrow the provisional government towards the end of 1917, um, their own calculations were based on thinking through possible scenarios, which they you know, fully accepted might develop um, one way or the other. So it seems to me that there, you know, it is legitimate um, and consistent, you know, it is not inconsistent with a kind of history that is able to account for um, deep processes and grand patterns, but at the same time can um, also incorporate the idea that there are specific points at history where historical agency matters a great deal. 
and that there are kind of branching points which send um, historical development down particular trajectories one way or the other. Yeah, I think your point about um, doing history of revolutions is really essential for uh, um, understanding the value of this counterfactual um, uh, experiment, because uh, this book, more than uh, traditional sort of political histories or or biographies um, of the, the Bolsheviks, gave me more of an understanding of how they were thinking and what they're looking at a range of possibilities and going through a range, you know, shall we say in today's parlance, gaming out various possibilities. And um, I was, you know, at one point in, in my life, I was um, a Soviet history major, uh, promptly flunked out of Russian. So I had to retreat to, uh, <laughs> to French history and Southeast Asian studies um, and, and, and then found out how difficult Vietnamese was <laughs> compared to Russian. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, but um, in, in reading sort of those classics, um, I, I, I got a narrative of the decisions that were being made, but not necessarily the way that historical actors were thinking through possibilities. Well, I mean, and I'm, it, yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it because, like I say, I think it, um, it, um, I think it is, like I say, not only legitimate but in fact necessary in order to understand. Um, at least the Russian Revolution, if not um, if not indeed other revolutions, um, and to that extent, I think so. Yeah, I certainly want to make the case for um, for this kind of counterfactual history as something which can be done, um, which can be incorporated into broader accounts of history without without damaging the integrity of our understanding of the historical process. Yeah, yeah, and and calling attention to certain, certain without without being so the great man in history kind of approach, but calling attention to certain turning points, the importance of contingency. Um, if if this had not happened, then what could have been the possibilities? Again, gaming this out, and um, and I, and and I I mean this in an extremely complimentary way, but this book reminded me of some of the better examples of science fiction. Um, and using that genre as a way to um, uh, not to go into the past, but to go into the future and play out different scenarios. Um, my graduate students told me to uh, start watching The Expanse, which I, I started a few weeks ago, um, which yeah, I think is a pretty darn thoughtful, uh, well-informed um, sci-fi show. And evidently they uh, for IR theory folks, there's a, there's a lot to wrestle with there. Um, and so having, you know, prepping for this conversation, having just read your book and then doing this deep dive into, uh, binge watching the, uh, the expanse during, uh, COVID times. Um, I, 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 I got it. The light sort of went on. And, um, uh, I think that these non-traditional kinds of historical explorations writing, I think really, would be of, of value for um, academic historians to uh, to engage in, but so I already I already alluded to it. But um, what, what what is your premise here for Lenin Lives? When 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 does what what shapes your um, uh, historical li- uh, timeline in this counterfactual history? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I mean it's based on what is I mean some of it is based on very um, uncontroversial and very conventional accounts of the Russian Revolution 
in as much that it is you know commonly understood and accepted that um, Lenin, when Lenin arrives from exile in the midst of the First World War, when he arrives from exile from Switzerland back into Russia, famously um, turns up at the Finland station oh, after the Tsar has been overthrown, that Lenin is the only one um, who wishes to overthrow the provisional government and to, um, as the slogan had it, put put all power in the hands of the Soviets. And it was this, um, the April, the political vision that he articulated in the April theses that indicate the importance of um, the individual in a particular kind of historical juncture, Lenin's own kind of political vision and agency, and the fact that he... Um, Kind of assiduously work to persuade the rest of his, uh, the rest of the Bolshevik party, to um, side with him because, in that particular point, most of them were still in, still favoured, supporting, extending their support to the provisional government. So it grows out of, like I say, a kind of uncontroversial, um, the an uncontroversial account of the facts of the Russian Revolution, and then kind of branches out um, to into. Um, draw out a narrative out of what would have happened if the Russian Revolution had succeeded in spreading westward, which was indeed what the Bolsheviks um, hoped for, intended, but also um, the kinds of they incorporated that assumption into their calculations about when to seize power because it was based on disruption that was happening with the war effort in Europe with um, mutinies and strikes breaking out in different places. So as you mentioned, and it is also central to Lenin's thinking when he's negotiating um, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, right? I mean, yeah. they famously say that you know the lines on the map don't matter now because the world's going to be engulfed in the flame of revolutions in a few years. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you alluded to, the premise kind of going on from there, the premise of the book is that Lenin lives a little longer, helping to smooth the international spread of the October Revolution to Western Europe. But the major conceit of the book, I suppose, is precisely that the westward spread of the revolution makes, um, paradoxically, makes Lenin himself a far less important figure from the viewpoint of this alternative historical timeline. Um, and like I say, I mean, this was the premise of the Bolshevik strategy in overthrowing the provisional government in, in Russia, that it would help to detonate revolutions further afield. So the Bolsheviks' wager was indeed um, that they would themselves quickly become far less important once the revolution had spread to the wealthier, industrialized great powers of Western Europe and eventually to the US itself, all countries which had um, large, powerful and well-organized labor movements um, and so the book recounts that counterfactual history, that history against the facts, interwoven with um, or shot through with um, strands from actual history, uh, hopefully allowing the reader to compare kind of um, what could have happened and what did happen in parallel. Yeah, I think it's really important because so in, in, in many conventional historical accounts of this time period, so much of the significance and the potential power of initially the mutinies, then the strikes, and other forms of uh, social and political uh, agitation from um, from Paris to um, Seattle, yeah. uh, Washington, um, as, you know, especially as we get towards 1919, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a, a moment uh, like 1968 or like 1848 or what have you, where there could have could have been this much larger uh, revolutionary process, and especially as as you as you play out in the book, as they're feeding off each other, 
there's yeah. a snowball uh, impact um, or whatever the metaphor. I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii, so the snowball <laughs> thing is really dramatic to me. But evidently, a snowball rolls downhill and gets more snow. Um, so I've read, um, but um, that they would they would feed on each other and um, not only give sort of moral support, but um, uh, create more political space for um, left wing possibilities and and. This, this like sort of deeper international revolutionary resonance, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So that the there there would be a mutually self reinforcing effect, um, which was what was what revolutionaries of the time expected, um, what the leading labor organizers of the day expected, um, what the political and indeed, I mean, what the counter revolutionary statesmen, um, you know, also expected and. Uh, dreaded and feared. So this um, this idea of this cumulative wave of self-reinforcing um, uh, strikes, mutinies, um, national uprisings from Ireland across Central and Eastern Europe, through to revolutionary overthrow of um, of the governments of the day, all of this factored into um, the way in which people understood the stakes of what was going on in that period. Yeah, and um, as you. As you play this out, as you you look over the course of the next century, what would the impact of this be? Is that this uh, starts off the the 20th century with this incredible moment of international solidarity, uh, to the point where international isn't really even a thing because the nation state disappears, right? More or yeah. Less. So I mean, I so I work. I mean, on the premise that of kind of. Um, on the premise that if you'd had the success of um, socialist revolution in the early 1920s and through the mid-20s to the end of the 20s, that you'd have had a vastly, obviously a vastly different world. And so the basis of the counterfactual narrative is kind of subtract, subtracting some of the kind of, some of the counter-revolutionary um, blocks of the era so is fascism is a response to the failure of revolution and if stalinism is a response to the failure of revolution then you know logic suggests that if the revolution had succeeded then stalinism and fascism you can kind of remove them from the historical narrative from the historical process and that already seems to me to be a much um, a much better world um, if the if the socialist revolution had spread to Western Europe and was able to build on the um, civic and democratic achievements of the organized labor movements of the day, then presumably you could have had the expansion of democracy and the expansion of civic freedoms um, and equality on a much larger scale, much earlier in the 20th century than we actually saw, because obviously the struggle for kind of civil rights, for all sorts of equality, of um, the extension of suffrage to women, all of those processes, the disestablishment of national churches, all of these things took far longer to play out over the course of the 19th century, sorry, of the 20th century. So um, basically this kind of this rapid, this rapid accumulation of progress at the beginning of the 20th century without war, without fascism and without Stalinism and all of their kind of associated horrors um, would lead, it seems to me, it's logical to say that it would lead to a much more improved 20th century much earlier on, so that we get better international cooperation, we don't get the trade wars um, of the 1930s, there's no Second World War, um, there's no none of the kind of um, violence and bloodshed and upheaval that's associated with it, so you have much a much more solid cumulative record of growth, as well as um, political, civic progress. 
Um, and all of these things would also be self-reinforcing and would lead to further and more rapid improvements in scientific advances, in the dissemination of scientific advances, in public education, in the emancipation of women, in um, the dissolution of the empires in Europe. All of these things seem to me, it would be safe to say that they would have happened quickly and more smoothly had um, the revolution not been blocked and impeded um, and retarded by the actual course of events in the 20th century. Right, right. And one of the questions that I, I was drawing up for you was, you know, and, and I think you've answered this, who's more important in this narrative, Lenin or Luxembourg? And I think you uh, answer Luxembourg, um, that the, the German revolutions, um, in many ways, this, the, this imagined success of the German revolution, shall we say, would be much more important than um, the success of the Russian revolution. So, um that would mean a, as you say, a more European revolution, which would mean a more German revolution, and thus a more German Marxism. So, uh, what do you what do you want to convey by highlighting that a more German Marxism and a more German revolution? Yeah. So, as you say, I mean, the failure of the German Revolution is um, in the book. I suggest it's more decisive in the history of the twentieth century than the Russian Revolution. Um, and it's not a single event, I suppose, but it stretches from the overthrow of the Kaiser and the brewing civil war in Germany in 1918 through the turbulence of the early 1920s, um, throughout which the German workers remained highly organized and militant um, and of a revolutionary temper. Um, so implicitly, it does mean that the German workers' leader, Rosen Luxemburg, is more important to the narrative. Um, but but I don't focus too much on the kind of the crunchy detail of those years, and that's a deliberate choice um, because it. I want to stress that it was a, that all these processes are themselves cumulative. So it was a series of cumulative defeats rather than any single episode. And so to focus on any single kind of precise moment, I think, would be to undercut the argument of the book. Not least the fact that um, eventually these kind of these uh, series of cumulative defeat, defeats are themselves transmutated into supposed gains and, and victories. So, you know, improvements to the living standards of um, the working class in Germany resulting from the social democratic, the social democrats early welfare state is um, kind of sold as a victory rather than seeing it as a response to the defeat of the German revolution. And of course, the idea of socialism in one country, um, the Stalin, the philosophy of Stalinist Russia is also seen as a victory, as a gain rather than as a defeat of the earlier vision of revolution. Um, so to say that it would have been a more um, that a European, a Western European revolution would have been a more German Marxism, is to underscore the fact that you know the the the, uh, the way in which we think about Marxism um, as you know kind of soldiers um, in fur hats and jackboots trooping around in Red Square, um, that itself is it's an artifact of the history of the 20th century. It's a contingent outcome of the revolutionary turmoil of the post-war era. And had the revolution spread westwards, um, the memory and the retrospective understanding of Marxism would be very different. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think of um, a point I once heard Tarak Ali make in an interview that um, uh, during the course of the Civil War, so much of the um, St. Petersburg working class died and that so many peasants who had not developed the same level of workers' consciousness were brought into the Red Army and then became really the backbone of this new revolution. And they hadn't gone through the same historical, again, transformation of consciousness. Um, that that's that that's a, a, a an important point that's often 
sort of lost in the narrative. Like there's an, this internal demographic shift within the um, the Bolshevik movement as it becomes the Soviet movement. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the I mean, the history of the Russian Civil War and all of the wars that kind of occurred on its on the fringes of the old Tsarist Empire in Finland, um, in Central Asia, in the Caucasus. Um, all of that story is, um, I think, is um, is still not really um, appreciated in in Western um, historiography. So, I mean, yeah. we have a much better, you know, there's much more kind of, I think, popular consciousness, say, of the of the importance of the Eastern Front in the Second World War, but still very little real kind of um, popular appreciation of what happens in the Russian Civil War um, and just how important it is historically in terms of its precise kind of um, results, as you suggest. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved some of the the asides that you went into in regards to the white forces in the the Russian Civil War, um, you know, just bringing up some of the you know the re- really vile actors in uh, that that made up you know these various factions within the white forces, and you you mentioned the uh, Baron von Ungern, um, the the Buddhist warlord who promised an anti-Semitic genocide under the banner of the swastika. And this is years before Hitler's on anyone's radar screen. And um, uh, I think you refer to him as a Buddhist version of ISIS uh, out in Mongolia. Um, I mean, there's so many just sort of bizarre aspects of white terror and the white anti-communist forces in in the Russian Civil War, but also this is something I've, I've worked on in in, in Southeast Asian history and Indonesian history, I mean, these there's this resonance of these, this, you know, really kind of nuts nature of some of these anti-communist movements over the course of the next uh, the next century. Um, what, what what why did you want to bring that in? And, and was it was this sort of like some of the uh, traditional um, parts of the history that are silenced in in most narratives? Um, partly, but I think it was also very much to stress the point that, um, to underscore the point that you just made, um, that the kind of the murderous, um, that the murderous iteration of, um, exterminatory anti-communism that recurs throughout the 20th century, um, it begins really in the Russian civil war itself. Um, but then, as you say, kind of plays out to I mean with, you got the white terror in Hungary following the suppression of the Hungarian Soviet Republic, the fascists and Nazis of the interwar period, in this, not, and as well as the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War, and then right through to the kind of the Cold War era death squad regimes of Indonesia, Latin America, um, in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Um, and I suppose, and as well, I think you know, it should also be remembered that in as much as Stalin um, killed off most of the old Bolshevik Party in his purges across the nineteen thirties, I think he too um, was part of that wave of anti-Marxist mass murder that unfolded across the 20th century. Um, and given, I suppose, how much violence was unleashed, um, the intensity and the ferocity of that kind of counter-revolutionary violence is testimony, I think, in some sense, to just um, how high people's aspirations had been raised um, through socialism, through various forms of anti-imperial struggle, um, through communism, and that it required that um, inordinate amount of violence and bloodshed and terror in order to crush those aspirations. So. Um, that was the that was um, part of the reason of uh, stressing the um, the white 
the white terror of the Russian civil war, but also because in the counterfactual narrative that I develop, obviously it's with the defeat of um, the defeat of uh, the Baron von Ungar, and it would be in in that kind of alternative timeline. It's the last time that the swastika would be raised um, as the banner of a racial exterminatory war, war of such um, terrifying kind of irrationality and cruelty and violence. Um, and unfortunately, that's not. But that isn't the world that we live in. The world that we that we do live in, um, the factual historical world, is the world in which the swastika would be raised again um, in a very similar kind of campaign to the one that um, the that uh, the Baron von Ungarn waged in Central Asia during the Russian Civil War. Right. This this reminded me of a, of a recent book by um, the uh, Filipino sociologist Walden Bellow. Uh, Counter Revolution: The Global Rise of the Far Right. I'm going to talk to him in a few weeks, and um, I, I think that you know historians have been really good at writing histories of global communism, international communism, what have you, and have been much weaker at looking at international anti-communism and sort of the international white forces. And um, I got to talk to um, uh, Vincent Bevins, uh, wrote the Jakarta Method. Uh, a couple months ago on the on the podcast, and I think he did a, has done such a great job as a journalist connecting the dots between far right anti communist violence in Southeast Asia and um, Latin America. Absolutely, yeah. um, and so you know, re- reading that section of Lenin Lives, um, uh, you know, took took me back, you know, further back from the Cold War into the really the the origin of of the revolutionary moment uh, with the Civil War. And that those forces are there. Um, I, I, I got to ask you about uh, um, your discussion of Churchill in there, which was um, especially with <laughs> what's been going on with uh, various sort of popular debates about history in the UK and so forth. But you seem to uh, have a good time taking uh, the old guy down a few pegs. Um, tell us about uh, Churchill in your um, your alternate uh, historical timeline. Yeah, I have to say, probably the perhaps the um, the author's relish came across perhaps <laughs> in in those <laughs> sections. Um, it's part. So I talk about Churchill. What you know, Churchill's uh, what Churchill's career would have looked like in this alternative timeline. What his life would have looked like. Um, and I dwell on it partly because Churchill himself was a counterfactual historian. So he wrote one especially creepy narrative in which a victory of the Confederate States and the U.S. Civil War leads to this um, kind of prolonged Anglo-Saxon global hegemony in which the Confederate States are one of the three pillars of this weird racial utopia, the British Empire being another one of the pillars. Um, but so, I mean, partly, you know, it's I think it was kind of um, uh, dealing with other kind of counterfactual stories that I dwelt on Churchill, but also um, it was a deliberate narrative device, which I tried to um, tell the counterfactual story through the lives of famous personalities as a way of bringing alive the argument. Um, And in so doing, I also wanted to show that historic change is expressed more through people's lives rather than by um, a history of great men. And thus, in my counterfactual narrative, Churchill's life is obviously, on the one hand, it's dramatically altered by the achievement of a socialist revolution in Britain, um, which leads him to kind of, in my narrative, flee and establish, attempt to establish a monarchist government in exile abroad. But in the other ways that um, his life would have been in many ways similar as well um, to the one that he actually lived in the actual historical world, which is to say he was prone to depression. 
He was frequently a politically isolated figure who was seen as a crank for quite a bit of the interwar period. He was a mediocre painter. And so all of these kind of individual quirks, I think they also, they also would have expressed themselves in the changed historic circumstances, which I recount in the book. And so it's a, I suppose it's a device through which I try to convey some of the underlying purpose of counterfactual history itself. Um, and to try and show how you know there are some you change some of the you can change some dramatic um, alter some dramatic um, uh, circumstances in thinking through kind of imaginatively thinking through an alternative historic timeline, um, and there will still be things that will still look familiar. Yeah, yeah, and it, and and it's all the more delicious when you note that he wrote a counterfactual history. Yeah, um, that has this <laughs> this white supremacist fantasy so okay yeah. let's 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 do this to you exactly yes um on, on the other end of the political spectrum of uh sort of political uh personalities um you in your your reading of the political tra- trajectory of the global south in this alternate narrative um you present a history with no ho chi minh no che guevara no ben bella um walk us uh through that as it involves rethinking nationalism and the nation state and um and decolonization yeah so in the book i mean i suggest that the global south or the way in least in which we conceive of it at the end of the 20th century at the start or i suppose at this in the first quarter of the 21st century itself is an artifact oh, you can say it it's it's the end of the end of history at the end of the end of history fine thank you <laughs> i'm glad i got i needed your permission just so, just so long as you don't have to send him royalties every time you say no that. no luckily not okay. no no so <laughs> but yeah so the global south at the end of the end of history i suppose um the implication of the argument and the one that i try to put across in the book is that the global south itself is an artifact I think, I argue, of the isolation and containment of the Russian Revolution, which means that revolutionary upheaval remains trapped in the periphery and effectively becomes a constant reiteration of the Russian experience of socialism in one country. Um, Arab socialism uh, do, you know, falls apart into the socialism of individual nation states in the Arab world, African socialism the same, Chinese socialism again, socialism in one country. And all of this is all socialism that's predicated on the Stalinist model of um, industrial catch-up and geopolitical rivalry with the West, rather than the classical Marxist ideal of socialism based on uh, boosting up from liberal democracy. So had revolution successfully spread westward from Russia after 1917, um, the conceit of of Lenin lives, the conceit of the book, then I reckon that the old European colonial empires could have been upgraded into um, larger socialist commonwealths and federations that would have been transcontinental, not unlike the way in which the old Tsarist empire was upgraded into a Soviet federation by the Bolsheviks. Um, Thus the failure of the revolution, it seems to me, is re is vital to help us understand how the nation state became the dominant political unit of the 20th century, making people like Ho, like Ben Bella, like Guevara, um, romantic national heroes for an era of national liberation. Because, I mean, had the revolution in the metropolitan country succeeded, I argue we never would have had the need for national liberation struggles in the global south. Because as the empires were overthrown at home, they wouldn't need to have been overthrown abroad. And thus the lives of Guevara, Ho, and Benbella would have looked very different in the alternative timeline that I plot in the book. 
yeah, in, in, in Vietnamese history where I do much of my work, there's this, you know, this decades long debate of was Ho Chi Minh really a communist or really a nationalist? And yeah. you know, it's, it's, in some ways it's a, it's a, just a dumb question. Yeah. It's both. Um, yeah. Yeah. but, um, this, in this book, he would be nationalist or maybe wouldn't eat or excuse me, would not be nationalist, would be, um, would be a communist and wouldn't, wouldn't need to go down that path, um, due to this international collaboration. Um, yeah. I, I, as, as someone who, again, who works on imperialism, works on uh, cold war in the region, I, I, I thought that found that to be such a fun, um, uh, thought experiment. Yeah. And I have um, to say, I mean, it kind of cut yeah. against my, it cut against my kind of initial, um, um, kind of initial starting point as well. So, because so much of my work, well, uh, as we started chatting at the beginning, I mean, so much of my work has been based on thinking about the way in which um, imperialism has been recreated in different forms at the end of the 20th century, not least in forms of liberal internationalism, you know, seen in the United Nations and so on. So, you know, my, I've always, my sympathies um, have always been with um, trying to understand the politics of the global South and um, struggling against circumstances that are so kind of imposed from outside and from abroad, but I, following the logic of the argument and following the logic of this um, thought experiment, as you say, to try and plot this alternative timeline, it took me in a very different direction from where I initially, from where I initially started, and so the idea of thinking of um, a world without, without the need for revolution in the third world because revolution had happened in the West. It was kind of very, like you say, it was very, um, it was very unexpected for me too. So, yeah. So, um, we, you've touched on some of these, um, these, uh, issues earlier, but what, what would be the socialist, the implications of a socialist victory for science, for healthcare, for the environment? I mean, you, you mentioned previously, there'd be this structures for more international cooperation and also not the avoiding wasting the resources on things like second world war cold war military spending and so forth so what you know game that out for us what 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 do you see happening in this alternate uh, 20th century yeah so on the assumption that so much of um so much of the story of um science and progress in the fir- in well throughout the whole of the 20th century is bound up with geopolitical rivalry and so much um technological and scientific development is retarded by nationalism, by fascism, by mass murder, um, by camps, death camps, and exile, and all of the kind of terrible depredations. If those, if that is removed, then you have much greater scientific improvement. You have uh, many scientists, um, many um, important cultural public figures, and so on, living longer, and also able to advance the pace of. Um, technology and science further without the need for kind of state secrets, without the need for it being um, constrained to arms buildup and um, imperial rivalries and what have you. Um, So the assumption is that if you have greater public investment, which isn't um, caught up with, um, with national rivalries and arms races and what have you, that there is the possibility for um, improved standards of living much earlier um, and also the possibility for greater scientific um, advances, you know, just in a very basic sense of scientific congresses involving um, people meeting um, from all, you know, all different countries. And just even those, the basic mechanics of scientific cooperation were so kind of curbed and restricted 
by the experience of the interwar period and um, subsequently by the Cold War. So all of this, I assume, would boost scientific advancement and progress. And the upshot also would be more rapid global economic growth. And that's, I suppose, you know, by the logic, by following the logic, more rapid global warming um, appearing presumably earlier in the last century. But by the same token, um, if you'd had um, socialist, if you'd had socialist governments established in the Western world, which is to say, in you know the the wealthy, most technologically advanced core of the international system, it would presumably also be a more technophilic world, um, and a world which has transcended imperialist and geopolitical rivalries through various forms of international socialist federalism and so on. It would find it easier to address that enhanced climate change in a collective fashion because you would need far less coordination across independent national capitals and different kind of power centers and it would be less caught up with geopolitical rivalry and so therefore the assumption in the book is that even though you would have um you would have uh, global warming emerging as a problem earlier in the previous century we would also have the resources to tackle it earlier and more effectively with less of the kind of lag and difficulty and friction and general sluggishness which we're confronting today. Yeah, I thought the environmental discussion in the book was one of the moments where I really got sold on the counterfactual thought experiment because uh, it gets so sophisticated the way you take take the reader through that. It's like, well, um, yes, based upon, um, you know, uh, Marxism and and the scientific socialism, there would be this dramatic increase in industry, which we now in in twenty twenty one know would have these environmental impacts. But then you 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 keep gaming through that, and like, well, how would this different political scenario respond to that? And for I, I teach a course in twentieth century world history, so the um you know the rise and fall of um of Marxism in, in communist states is, is obviously an important theme in that. And it's, it's really difficult working with my students to get them engage, to engage in historical empathy uh, because they know how bad it's going to get, right? They, they, they know, they know that something really bad happened in the thirties and then it continued to be pretty bad. And they, they've got some images about the Soviet union in the 19 late seventies and early eighties of, you know, breadlines and whatnot. A lot of it's lacks context and everything, but they, they know the experiment goes wrong. And so it's really difficult for them to get into the, the optimistic uh, mindset of the revolutionaries. And, you know, especially the folks who, who you just noted were, uh, you know, uh, wound up in the basement of the Ubanka prison in the 19 mid 1930s, getting a bullet in the head, um, you know, that really the core, the core Marxist intellectuals of the party, who had an you know an entirely different approach to problem solving and, and collaboration and so forth. So again, I I found the book just so inspiring and like it's, it it's definitely going to impact how I teach this history in my um in my 20th century world class. So you've been I I could go on forever. I can just keep asking you about these various threads, but with a book like this, there's also the problem that there's spoilers. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, you're, you're, you're giving an alternate history. So I don't want I don't want to uh, take the wind out of your sails. So um, I just strongly recommend to listeners to, to dive into um, Lenin lives and, um, and explore this project. Um, you've been really generous with your time and I've got two more questions before I let you go. First, can you suggest two books um, uh, for the listeners. Yeah, uh, happily. So, um, I guess two books I've been thinking about recently. Um, so one is Michael Lintz, the new class war, 
um, which is a concise, um, superb, short overview of class politics in the Western world in the era of um, this kind of um, uh, seemingly intractable clash between um, liberalism on the one hand and populism on the other. Um, and the other is a book called The Left Case for Brexit um, by the um, US political theorist Richard Tuck, um, which does exactly what it says on the tin. And um, they're both books which I found very useful for thinking about politics today in Britain and in the US. Um, so I'd uh, strongly recommend them to your listeners if they're interested in those questions. And then the second title was The Left Case for the Brexit? Left, yeah, The Left Case for Brexit by Richard Tuck. Yeah, I recently listened to your your podcast on Scotland and 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 Brexit, and um, I I I really appreciated the way that um, one of your guests had <laughs> admitted her her sort of ambivalent thinking about Brexit and and the European Union and and um, her I think she noted that most of her repulsion to Brexit was on aesthetic grounds, um, and and the <laughs> the racism, um, but at the same time, boy, was it tough for her to defend the European Union. And, you know, in, yeah. in, in an alter, alternate historical timeline, if there was an European Union that put labor ahead of capital and environmental regulations ahead of uh, economic growth, um, yeah, I, I, I would wave that flag. <laughs> but the way it played out. Um, no, absolutely. I've always been willing to give, I mean, I've um, I've been willing to give the European Union the benefit of the doubt in terms of whether they are would actually be capable of um, building something better out of the nation states of Europe. But I think, unfortunately, it's just been proved time and time again that they're, um, that it's an institution that's congenitally incapable of that. So it can only really kind of degrade and muddle through rather than actually kind of improve or um, uh, build something better. So for that reason, you know, I think Euroscepticism is warranted. Though, as you say, you know, the our guest on that particular episode, Kat, was um, she expressed very well, I think, a lot of the ambivalence and difficulty that many on the left had in Britain um, and how torn they were over this question. Yeah. Um, and then finally, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? So the book I'm working on at the moment, uh, the tentative title for it is The Mutual Ruin of the Contending Classes. And it's one of the scenarios that um, Marx and Engels mentioned themselves in the Communist Manifesto of 1848 as one of the um, possible outcomes of class struggle. And it seems to me it's um, a scenario that's kind of very, very, hasn't really been explored, but seems to me very important for any kind of um, political history or social science, which incorporates an account of um, class conflict and class struggle that it also think through what that scenario might look like, not least because it was given prominence by um, by the founders of um, founding fathers of modern communism themselves. So that um, that's the current project, the current book project. Great. Well, Philip Cunliffe, thank you for chatting with me. Thanks. It's been great. Thanks for having me on. So this has been a conversation with Philip Cunliffe of the University of Kent and co-host of the Afe Bunga Bunga podcast about his new book, Lenin Lives, Reimagining the Russian Revolution, 1917-2017, out with zero books in 2017. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.